When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl, and I'm Esther Ikoro, and we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard, and you will sometimes cry at dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. I'm excited about today's conversation because we are going to be talking about my favorite subject, which is women, 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 women all over the world are absolute creators and drivers of society. And now in particular, because we are working from home, a lot of women are now working from home in ways that they never imagined. We're not in the caveman days anymore, people, where women are, you know, cooking and cleaning and barefoot and the man's going out, you know, catching the food and (laughs) bringing it home to the children. Um, Women are working. Um, We are builders, coaches, spiritual guides, cooks, teachers, and we also make battleships. Unfortunately, we don't have full economic power. We don't fully even own our own bodies. We don't have financial independence yet. My utopian vision is a world where women are working together, collaborating, helping each other, networking for each other, not against each other, working for the interests of all women, working for economic and social justice. And when I say women, I mean all women, but I especially mean including Black women. So one of the things that I do at Burke Creative and on my podcast and with all the work I do in the field, I'm looking for women to join me in my mission, which is to use our own social and technology platforms and our powerful skill sets to not only help other women climb, but to help women make money doing it. I mean, that's, that is the most important piece is that I put everything in my power to ensure that not only am I helping another woman make money or get attention or find her power, but I'm also helping myself too, but we're working together collaboratively to do this. So today... I am talking to Dr. Cheryl Robinson. She is an international speaker, creator of Embrace the Pivot brand, and a regular contributor at Forbes Women. She's an expert on pivoting, which is one of my favorite things. Through her column, she's interviewed over 250 plus of some of the most powerful and inspiring women in the world, including Suzanne Shank, Kathleen Kennedy, Bobby Brown, Diane von Furstenberg, Cheryl helps individuals and corporations navigate the pivoting landscape through workshops and seminars. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be with you today. I know. I mean, I feel like you and I have known each other for quite some time now, pre pre 2019 days, right? I feel like we got to know each other in the summer of 2019. Is that about right? Yeah, sounds about right. And via Instagram, too. That's where the (laughs) connection was made. (laughs) I know. Instagram is the best for networking. It really is. I mean, I feel like everything I do now, 
I go to Instagram first and I try to see who I want to connect with, what people are up to, what their visual aesthetic is. And then that kind of attracts me to, you know, want to learn more, right? I mean, that's just what's happening on Instagram, which is great. It's not like reading an Atlantic article, right? I mean, (laughs) you have to really make a commitment to do that. And I love the Atlantic. Believe me, I read all all their articles. But um, I just loved that we connect on that platform. And um, having you on the Honest Feel Guy podcast is really great for me because I was so fortunate that you interviewed me for um, an article that you wrote about me and my company. So I think that this is just exactly what I'm talking about doing, collaborating with other women that are in professional spaces and seeing how we can help each other. So, but before I, I don't want to talk about myself anymore. I want to understand more about you because you have transformed from when I first met you to now becoming a doctor. But before we talk about your dissertation process, I really want to understand, (laughs) I know, right? I was following you the whole time when you're doing that. So I really want to understand where did you grow up? I mean, what did you want to be as a little girl? Uh, so I actually grew up in a small Jersey Shore town. And growing up, I honestly thought I was either going to be an architect or an interior designer. But then when the time came to look at colleges, I decided I no longer wanted to do that. And I always thought, I always had an entrepreneurial mindset. So I always thought too, I'd have my own company or my own firm. And at the time, I didn't want to go to college. I was so done with school and my parents said, well, you can either go to college or you can get a job. And I said, well, college it is. I wasn't ready for a job. Were your parents entrepreneurs or were they in business? Were they educators? What was their life like? My dad is an engineer. He's an inventor. He designs products. And growing up, he had government contracts. And my mom was a motivational speaker. She does NLP work, which is neuro-linguistic programming. So I was really fortunate enough to see both of my parents in powerful roles. And when I went into high school, my dad decided to start his own company. He designed and patented one of the first real-time tracking systems in the country. So I got to see him and what he went through being an entrepreneur. And then I got to see my mom just, she would walk on the stage and just own the room. And between the two of them, their influence, it it really shaped who I was or who I am today. And I had 15 years of experience in sports entertainment. And that started in high school where I was the manager of the wrestling team, but I went to all the practices. I helped wash the mats. I, you name it, I did it. I was literally part of the team. And that interest carried over into college where then I was the manager and took stats for the men's basketball team. And I was with that coach for 15 seasons. So like, there's a lot going on in there, but my parents helped me understand, go after what you want. I read that you have a master's in sports management from Columbia, right? So yes. I'm curious because it, it, it's 
I, I looked at that and I was like, wow, what? I don't even understand. I mean, what, what in the world? So how has this helped your career? It sounds like it's helped you and it's made a difference. And that's why you are today. I, I'm trying to understand what is the connection between that and where you are today. What Talk about that process. So after graduation, I moved out to California. This is undergrad. I worked in Hollywood for two years where I was the assistant to agents and managers. I got to work on some really cool projects. And I thought that I had found the dream job. And I was helping out at a children's film festival. I said, yes, I'm going to be here for like the next five to seven years. I saw my path. And that was going to be the next Steven Spielberg, even though I never went to film school, but I just had that much confidence. (laughs) And one day I went to work and the whole place was boarded up. There was nobody in the office. And at that point, it was close to two years being out in Hollywood. And when you work in entertainment, you are literally out hustling 24-7 because you need to meet the right people to go to the right parties, to have the right dinners, the right connections to get you your next gig. And most of Hollywood, it's all gig freelance base. So by that time, I just said, am I really up to hustling anymore? And I was in, you know, early 20s, mid 20s? And the answer was no. And I came back east and I got a position in intercollegiate athletics. And about six months to a year into that position, I was doing marketing for them. So there has to be more to this. And I was doing research. And again, this was a couple years ago. So it was before everyone really knew sports was a career. And Columbia had just launched their sports management program. I think I was cohort three or four. And I went there because all of my professors at Columbia, they were trailblazers in the sports industry. They made what sports is today. Wow. Who was, to me, can you name a few? Who would those be? Yeah. So Val Ackerman, who was the first president of the WNBA. She was David Stern's right-hand woman. She's now the commissioner of the Big East. Um, Neil Pearson, the former CBS president. Tony Pontoro, he basically ran the sports division of Anheuser-Busch. He was one of the first people to make one of the largest deals in sports. So it was people like that that I was able to study under. And at the time, I thought I was going to work for a team or a league. That didn't happen that way. I was more so a consultant. I worked for a couple startups. I worked for a couple of professional athletes, former professional athletes. I did events, galas, all that type of stuff. Wow, you went all in. (laughs) I did. I mean, you were just like, I am doing this. (laughs) (laughs) And... I networked my way onto the 2014 New York, New Jersey Super Bowl, where I was involved with the host committee and the NFL committee for two years. And hands down, that was one of my top 10 best life experiences. I got to watch the Super Bowl from the Maris suite, their co-owners of the Giants. It was incredible for that Super Bowl when it was on the East Coast. And it was short, it was about a year after I came off of the Super Bowl. And I said, you know, I'm doing all this stuff for all these other people. I can do it for myself. And I started a company and I thought I was going to be this hotsy totsy event coordinator <laughs> who, could, who could do everything. 
And what happened was I never owned a business. I had no idea what I was doing, but I had the self-confidence to say, I'll figure this out. And so I started going to different networking events because I really had to learn how to be an entrepreneur. What happened was people started asking me, well, what type of events do you want to do? Do you have ideas of your own? And I started sharing that with people. But then they came back to me and said, we want to help you put on your events. Great. But again, brand new to this, I just went all in and people want to start becoming partners. And here was mistake number one, which (laughs) I totally (laughs) advise everyone. Like mistake number one. Number one (laughs) is do not partner, like legally partner with anyone until you actually work on projects with them for a solid year. Because that shows you who they are, how their work ethics, their character, just how they operate. And two, what also happened was I started getting two sets of partners and I started company number two. So that's mistake number two. Never start two companies at the same time when you have no idea what being an entrepreneur is all about. Were you sort of using that go get them approach when you were, you know, signing deals with people you really didn't know? Because that's what it sounds like to me. It it sounds like you're just in a network phase, not necessarily in a strategic one. Uh, Yeah, big time. And I just thought, you know what? I I saw a little bit of their background. I like them. And yeah, why not? Let's just try because I'm all about collaboration. I feel that you could go further together than you can solo. And I was at that time, I just said, something has to work. If you throw enough, you know what, up against the wall, something's bound to stick. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, as we got deeper into it, everyone was excited, but not everyone wanted to put 100% into what we were doing. And we all had other clients, we all had other jobs. So this too wasn't, we weren't fully focused on it. And it became a lot of work, but I had to prove to myself that I could pull off what we were doing. And we, I had two conferences going at the same time. So I was managing my doctoral degree. I was, I had other, I had a couple of clients and now I'm trying to manage two sets of partners do with two conferences, different speakers, different venues, you know, all of that. But I had to do it for myself because I said, I can't let this fail. I need to know for myself that I can do it. So did you ever have a regular job? I mean, did you have you just did you just go from from college to working for yourself? I mean, I don't I didn't hear you say you worked in a nine to five at any point. Have you ever done that? Uh, No. Oh, wow. I mean, I mean, in Hollywood, yes, it was nine to five. But when I came back east, it was all consultant based at work. And so did you have any, did you have any, any help or any mentors? I mean, who were you just on your own? Were you just sort of thinking, well, you know, my dad was an inventor. He started his own thing. My mom was a professional, um, amazing superstar speaker. Did you even consider getting some help or were you just on your own? No, I had mentors, not in the old fashioned sense where, okay, we meet every week and do progress reports or it wasn't like that. Wait, wait, wait. I never had a mentor like that. What are you talking about? Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. There's mentors like that? I there need are one. mentors like I that. I need one. <laughs> um, God. I mean, I maybe that would have helped. I don't know. But 
with every step, every stage I was at, there was always someone there to help guide me along. And I have to say quite a few of them were like, what are you doing two at the same time? You know, it was just crazy. Well, you know how women are. Women are like, they want it all (laughs) at the same time. Yeah. I mean, that's what we do. You know, that's how we get stuff done. We're just like, just get going. When you were, so you're, you're telling me at this moment, you had two things you were trying to run and you were also working on your dissertation. Yes. Yes. Obviously, your dissertation didn't go away. What had to give? What 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 was the point that you said, I'm out? <laughs> Let's rewind a little bit. Um, I've always been a writer. I've been published in local newspapers, online journals, all of that. I've always had a little bit of a portfolio. I've self-published two books. And I've always wanted to be a New York Times bestselling author. But I thought that would always be the side hustle and that working in sports, having clients would pay the bills. So that's what I focused on. But my writing never became the side hustle because I had too much going on. And I learned early on that I spread myself way too thin and the writing suffered. So after the two conferences went off, great, huge feedback. I had sponsors coming at me. But it just wasn't what I wanted to do. And I had to have a heart-to-heart with myself. And before I could even finish asking myself the question was, is this really what you want to do? It was a hard no. Mm. I don't want to do it. And what what exactly was the no? What is it that you didn't want to do? What aspect of that entrepreneurial journey did you say no to? It was the sets of partners I had. And like, there are multiple partners for each company. And there are a couple partners it was wonderful working with. And then there were other partners who it was not the best experience. And I, I just didn't want to deal with it. And I said, I just jumped in here. Like you said, there was no strategy, really. <laughs> there was, um, I knew what I wanted to do, but it felt like a lot of the workload was on a few of us and not the whole of us. So were you an equity partner? No. Mm-mm. Like we all, it, it was all equal. So you just, so then when you decided to jump ship, what happened? You just, you just left and you were clean. Like you didn't have, you didn't owe anybody nothing. And you're just like, I'm out. Yep. Bye. Yeah. Yep. But everyone else felt the same way too. Like we were all done. <laughs> and we uh, we dissolved the one company, but I still have my company, which is ready to roar. Yep. And that, that still remained intact, but I had to rebrand it. So I, I said to myself, well, what do you really want to do? I really want to write. And I made a commitment to focus on my writing. Oh. And it was three months after I made that commitment is when I met my former editor at Forbes Women. So you're a regular contributor for Forbes Women, right? And Correct. you do a lot of amazing articles and interviews. And of course, you know, my agency and 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 you know, I was my agency was in one of your articles and it was incredibly well received. Still gets a lot of hits and people are they just love the writing. And I and I love your Yay. writing too. I think that <laughs> One of the things that I was attracted to about you and um, your writing was you seem to have a an intuitive sense of of work and entrepreneurship, but definitely the the struggles and triumphs of women in business. And I wanted to understand how did you figure out and understand that this was a place of passion that you could be very successful because your your writing is is very unique and have a, you have a very unique perspective. What, what was it that, what signal did you get? Because some people don't pay attention to their signals. They don't pick up on the thing that is great. 
you did. What was it that you saw and how did you decide to go for it? So uh, this may sound cocky, but I always knew I was a good writer. And just I would always win contests in high school. I wrote speeches for people in high school. It, I just always knew I was good at it. And I just said, it's now or never. I always tell everyone my overall arching goal is to be a New York Times bestselling author, but I'm not writing. You can't be a bestselling author if you're not writing. And I just said, it's now or never. You're getting older and it's really just now or never. And there are tons of people making a living off of writing. I love the story of Forbes because I think it encompasses everything that I'm about. And I was at this event and one of the panelists was a regular contributor at Forbes Women. And the people I was with, they were going, oh, wow, that's so cool. Yeah, it was cool, but I wasn't seeing it that way. I was seeing it as, well, there's no reason why I can't be a contributor, but how do you get to be a contributor? After the panel was over, I went right up to that woman. I said, listen, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. How do I become a contributor? She said, come with me. And what we didn't, or what I didn't know was that the editor was in the room. She introduced me to the editor. The editor said, send me your information. It takes me like three months to get back to people. So don't stress out if I don't get back to you. It was literally three days later, she got back to me and said, hey, can you send me, you know, I already said her a portfolio, but she's like, can you send me more? I sent her more. Then I answered all these questions and more. And after like three rounds of interviews, if you want to call it that, she said, welcome aboard. But I had to be an expert in something. And yes, I've been in sports, but so have millions of other people. So I didn't necessarily consider myself an expert in marketing for that. So I really had to reflect on my life. And what I'm good at is when point A doesn't work, I go to point B, C, D, and I think I'm actually on triple Z right now, but you just keep going. And I said, I'm really good at failing forward. She goes, I like it, but it has to be more positive. So then I had to go back and reflect even more and think, well, what does failing forward actually mean? What does it mean from going to point A to point B, C, et cetera? That's pivoting. She goes, I love it. No one else is writing about it right now. It's emerging. Go for it. And that's where I owe her so much credit. Ruthie, if you're listening, thank you. Um, Because that now has sent me on the trajectory that I'm on with Embrace the Pivot brand. Wow. Incredible. So you're still writing, you know, astonishing work for Forbes Women. I'm really kind of curious just from a a tactic basis, right? Um, You recently wrote on LinkedIn about the volume of pitches you're getting and how poorly constructed they are. <laughs> it made me laugh. And I, I, before we talk about Embrace the Pivot, I really want to understand why are you getting so many pitches right now? What, what is happening? And, and, <laughs> and that- not only that, but in addition to you're getting so many right now and why, what do you think people should do before they start pitching you? Do you have a top three considerations? <laughs> oh, yeah. This could be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, trying to keep it to the top three, yeah. <laughs> um, but, I, but I really don't understand why you're getting so many. What is, what's happening? All right. So for the listeners out there, I get 300 pitches a week on average, and which what calculates out to about 40 a day. I mean, there was one day I got 61 pitches in one day. I mean, but wait, is that your normal volume or is no, that right now? No, that, that's right now. 
And it's because the pandemic hit. So one, you have everyone at home. No one knows when the workday starts and when the workday ends. So everybody is just home, pumping everything out. And two, you're getting a lot of people now that can't afford publicists. So they're trying to do the PR by themselves and they're sending blanket emails. So here is pet peeve number one. Never send a writer at a top tier media publication a blanket email. It's not going to get read because we know that if you're sending that blanket email and you can tell because one, it just says hello Two, the format is different. You can tell it comes from MailChimp or one of those services. And if you're sending it to me, then there's probably about 200 to 500 other people at the publication that you're sending it to. And with that, a lot of publications as contributors, you can't cover the same person or company at the same time because now you're fighting for viewership. So if I know just say 200 other people from my publication or the publication that I contribute to is receiving this email, well, the odds are one of them is going to like it. So that's number one, do not send blanket emails. And two, understand what the person writes about. I'm at Forbes Women. The vertical is women. I can't tell you how many pitches I get for men. And right there, if I see a male's name in it, I just delete it. I don't even open it because, (laughs) yeah, because that's a waste of my time to read that pitch. So that number two is just it, it takes longer to personally reach out to everyone and make that connection. But your success rate is going to be so much greater when you do. If you're just sending blanket emails, that is a waste of everybody's time, including yours, because no one wants to see the blanket email. When I see a pitch that says, great pivot story, I open it because they've actually cared to look at my column and see what I write about. Is that your third tip to say, to put the word pivot in any subject line <laughs> sending to, um, that gets sent no, to you? That, <laughs> all right, so real quick, number three, get my name right. A lot of people oh. will say Michelle, Caroline, what? you know, or, or wow. Lindsay, just random because they're just so quick. They just want to pump out these emails or they don't even have the publication name right. <laughs> so in that case too, I'm like, no, like I, I just don't even entertain it. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the days of when you were in college where you're getting, you're getting so much content that you're looking for a reason to eliminate because my God, you're not going to be able to go through 300 emails a right. week, right? right? I mean, what, right. like, do you it have just, an assistant? It doesn't happen. And I get so many pitches for cats I don't know how I got Wait, on that what? list. Cats? Yeah, for cat food. <laughs> what, like, is that? what does that mean? Why? The uh, pet food market is big right now. <laughs> I get a lot. I don't even know how I got on the cat food list. Oh my goodness. I is, get a lot of pitches for cat food. That is so, <laughs> that is so absolutely hilarious. People are going out on their own to pitch because they don't have the money to hire a PR person. I mean, PR is expensive. I mean, marketing in general is expensive. And the one thing that I do know, you can get, you can figure out how to buy an ad on Google 
but it's really hard to figure out how to pitch P- as a PR person unless you have a oh, professional. Yeah. It's just, it's not something that you can automate. It's not something that you can learn in a week. It's not a technical skill. I mean, there is a nuance around pitching, mm-hmm. but I also think, Cheryl, that the relationships count. You didn't mention anything about relationships. How does the relationship in the PR world have anything to do with getting your pitches through? Yeah. Well, you told me top three. So <laughs> that's my last <laughs> one. Number, I mean, just give me one more. <laughs> uh, number four is definitely relationships. And again, that takes a little while to build. But if you do it right, there are publicists we've developed that relationship and they don't pitch me all of their clients. Mm -hmm. They know what I write about. And when they pitch me, I put their emails up top. Of course, I'm going to look at their emails. And some of them were on a texting basis. So yeah, I'm going to get right back to you. And it's I'm more inclined to look at your pitch than someone who just sent me um, a blanket email. But it also goes both ways. I want that good connection too, because they may have a client that I really want to interview. And, you know, say a celebrity, I'm just going to throw it out there, Oprah Winfrey. Well, if knowing, building up those meaningful relationships, then I will get to interview Oprah. But if I just brush everybody off too, then I won't get there. So the relationship, it goes both ways and it is just key. And networking is key to success overall. So that's a whole nother topic too. Well, actually, I, <laughs> we I, it, is, it is another topic, but it, but it is one I want to talk about because women do have challenges around networking. They feel that um, they're bragging or they're being, um, they're ashamed of being proud of their work or proud, of their, or proud to talk about their successes. They don't want to network professionally because they feel like it's slimy, things like that. Um, how do you, how do you network and especially because you have a company, Embrace the Pivot, you have Ready to Roar, you're an author. Um, what is? What are your sort of strategies around networking, not only in the sense of meeting people to find out who you can interview for your next article right at Forbes Women, because that's an obvious, you want interesting and smart women for your articles, but how do you put that in the, con- in the context of business networking, especially yeah. now, you know, we we're not in person like we used to be. So like, what are you doing right now to, to keep things moving forward? I've been on a lot of virtual coffees mm, Okay, and I don't, I go into networking as what can I do for you? Because a lot of people approach networking with the whiffum effect, what's in it for me. And that is just such the opposite of how I operate. Because if you go in with the WIFM attitude, okay, you might be successful short-term, but long-term, you're not going to have any meaningful connections. So I I go in and as soon as people start talking and about their projects, I always like to ask people, what are you most proud of? Because they light up, they loosen up, they glow, and they really get down to what they're proud of, but they don't feel like they're bragging because I've asked them. And two, I really get to understand what they're working on, what type of character they are. And as they start to talk, I start to try to connect the dots. Who can I connect them to to help move this project forward? And it always comes back to me. I don't feel that I'm giving and not getting. But when you 
genuinely want to help someone, then they genuinely want to help you. And that's how I operate. And sometimes, yeah, it's not an overnight thing, but sometimes it takes six months to develop that type of relationship, sometimes a year. How do you find it? It's just everyone I meet. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but you have to play it out. And now I go on LinkedIn, people who comment on my articles, great read. I'm like, thank you. Let's connect. You know, what do you do? What projects are you working on? So I think when people can go in with how can I help them versus what, how can they help me? I think you're going to get a lot further. That's how I've always done it. And with ego, I always talk about ego because you need ego in order to succeed. And there's a very thin line between being cocky and just being proud of what you do. Because when you're proud of what you do, that shows so much. That shows the value that you bring to the table. It shows the connections that you have. It shows where you can take a company or help another individual out. And when I see people don't want to share their proudest moment because they feel that they're bragging or they were brought up not to, you know, talk like that, it drives me crazy because you need to be proud of yourself. If that's how you think of ego, you need to have that ego in order to succeed. And without the ego, you're always going to be left behind. It's the people who have that confidence enough to say, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I bring to the table. Here's how I can help you out. They're going to go a lot further in life than the people who wait for the people to come to you because those people aren't going to come to you if they don't know what you're up to. And the only way to know what you're up to is to share with people. Yeah. So, and although I do that with networking on social media, I'm still learning that because I, I just find it so interesting how some people can just put every part of their day up on social media and it's okay. And I, I'm starting to get my mojo going on social media with that and sharing a lot more. Yeah, people do, people do, especially now, people want to know the man or woman behind the curtain, rather. They want to see what's happening and how the, how they can learn about a person and have more of a human connection. Um, I think that that is challenging for some people that are not as comfortable sharing on social media um, because it mm -hmm. just seems so, it seems like you're bragging. It seems, you know, you know, showing things. It's like, why would you show that? It's none of anyone's business. But, you know, I, I actually do a lot of coaching around this, um, you know, for certain people to help them understand that they should be sharing things on social media, but mm -hmm. do be careful about it. You know, be careful. I mean, don't, don't, oh, don't, yeah. I mean, I, what I don't want to see is a half, I don't want to see a plate of food where everything's eaten and you're just seeing, you know, napkins and, you know, already <laughs> yep. chewed food, right? Um, but, um, but I love, I love that you shared about networking because I do think that you are a super powered collaborator. Um, I can tell that in your writing, it comes across. I, and I, I, I do watch you Thank and you. I see that, you're looking to help people, but you're also trying to help yourself. I mean, that's obviously, yeah. there still has to be some kind of mechanism to get you what yeah. you need. And you have a company called Embrace the Pivot. And I, of course, I love the, I love the word pivot. I did a, I did a video on, on pivoting on YouTube when I made a huge pivot in my career in 2017, 2016, actually, which is what, you know, you wrote about, about me. But, um, 
you know, talk a little bit about Brace to Pivot. Is it the same thing as Ready to Roar? What What is Embrace to Pivot? What is Ready to Roar? <laughs> so Ready to Roar has been through about three to four different rebrands, but I finally have it now. And it was actually after we had a conversation a couple weeks ago, and you said to me, uh, what is Ready to Roar? <laughs> I was trying to explain it. And you're like, I would not get that from you. So thank you for that enlightening moment because... <laughs> I always had embraced the pivot, ready to roar. Um, I created, it's an LLC to house my publications, my workshops, my seminars. But for the past three years now, I've just been embraced the pivot. So now I'm focused, like ready to roar is like the parent company now. Embrace the pivot is the actual brand. So I'm very passionate about pivoting. I've interviewed 250 plus individuals and through my dissertation, I actually was able to study pivoting. I went on a deeper level. I have all this knowledge. I have the pivot formula. And it's really about sharing it with the world because right now we're all pivoting. But it's you have to recognize that you're in a pivot. And then you have to recognize that you actually have control over your transitional moment. So many people get stuck thinking, oh my God, I don't have control. I've just been fired. My company went under, but and I have nowhere to go, but that's just the opposite. Once you can see that you have the control, that's what everyone wants, right? Is control. Having that mindset saying, okay, this is what happened. Now here's what we can do about it. The world would be a better place because people would be in a more positive uh, mindset, frame of mind to help move their life along to help them accomplish the goals that they set out to do. So that's Embrace the Pivot brand and then Ready to Roar is the parent company. So Embrace the Pivot brand, is it a is it a conversation? Is it a podcast? What is so, what is the actual <laughs> what is the what form does the brand take? So the brand I have Embrace the Pivot podcast. The Embrace the Pivot book is going to be coming out. It's the Forbes Women column where I get to interview everybody. And it is workshops and seminars. And I'm actually hosting the Embrace the Pivot Formula webinar next week. So I'm really excited. So when we talked about this last year, you were, when you first talked to me about it, you were putting together a website. And, you know, we were kind of strategizing and looking at it and trying to figure out what was happening on the website. This sounds like it's become a lot bigger to you than it was when we talked last year. So it's, it's, it's sort of, Oh yeah. Right. I have, yep. I have embraced the pivot.org. So I'm going to put that little plug Mm -hmm. in there, but it, um, yeah, on there, you see what the whole brand is about and embrace the pivot. I really through all those different verticals that I have with the brand is I want to share my knowledge with the world of how you can successfully pivot. You you deserve it and you're entitled to reaching the goal that you want. It's just recognizing the state that you're in and how do you pivot in order to get that, you know, to get to where you want to be. I mean, again, I'm just thinking back to your early days, right? Where you were um very resourceful and go get it, go get them, right? Mm-hmm. Is this what happened here? I mean, where where did the moment come in your life where you said, you know what, this is actually what I'm going to do. It's now or never. What what happened? Because we're in, right now we're in a pandemic and, I, and I'm always 
intrigued by people that launch stuff right now. I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> I mean, it just seems so scary. And, you know, it's scary being an entrepreneur anyway. Um, so what, when did, when did, did, did you decide this before, like earlier in the year or last year, or did something just say to you in your head, you're like, you know what, that's it. I'm doing it. And this is where I'm going to focus all of my energy from here on out. I am doing this. So after my, after I defended my dissertation and I said, it is now or never. And I was still working with this company and the contract was coming up and I said, all right, when the contract's done, I'm done. It is now or never. And my boyfriend and I were talking about getting married, having kids. And I know that if I have kids, I may not be able to ever go full force like I can in this moment. I I have the time. And then the pandemic hit. And I just said, all right, here we go. And I lost a lot of gigs, a lot of gigs during the pandemic. And I said, you could either be miserable, upset, depressed, or you could go after what you always told people. Well, if I had time, I would do X, Y, and Z. And I said, it is time to do X, Y, and Z. And I, I always give myself like a day to mourn what I've lost. <laughs> and then it is I love you. full force. <laughs> it is just like, here we go. And as the pandemic went on, Embrace the Pivot really took shape. And I, I loved it. And I said, here we go. Like, this is my moment. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm doing it 100%. You know, I, I've heard this so much. This is what I'm supposed to be doing right now. And I, and I think, you know, there's absolutely no shade on those that can't rise and continue to rise during a time like this because there, there is, you know, it, this takes a lot of stamina and perseverance and a certain type of an emotional something. And I don't know that everybody's going to make it. I think some people are just hanging on and they're going to start cracking and some people are, are thriving in this and <laughs> other people are, you know what, I'm out. I just have to just lay down and look at the sky for the next six months. And, you know, you have to do what you have to do, whatever aligns with your own spiritual space and your own energy um, to, to, to make things work. Um, I find it, I, I feel like when I, when I hear you talk about this, I, I would say that you you develop some of these skills from your parents to be able to keep going. You said your father was an inventor. My father was an inventor too, and he was an engineer. Um, he passed away last year, but Aww. I swear he he was he never gave up. I mean, he had some crazy ideas about things. I was like, you know what? You're kind of nuts. <laughs> You're just something really wrong with you. But um, I think there's something about having engineer parents that are inventing things that are believing in, in, in that anything's po- anything is possible for you to have some of the resilience and some of the skills you have right now to be working through this. Cause this is a time of uncertainty, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 100%. Are your parents still alive and are they still around and watching you do this? They are. And I'm very grateful for that. Yes. Yeah, I know. Me too. I'm grateful for the same things. Um, so are you facing any challenges right now with Embrace the Pivot? What is what is your number one challenge? Are you, are you, is it technology? You know, what what is it? Marketing. Oh goodness. This is 100 percent well, marketing. Technology. Yeah. Yeah. It's communications, right? So it um 
yeah, marketing. It's just getting the brand out there and the awareness so that every day I learn something new and you just got to keep going and putting something out, testing something is better than not putting anything out there at all. Because again, if you're not sharing, no one knows what you're working on. And if no one knows what you're working on, no one can help you. So I'm just A-B testing a lot lately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Well, I'm I'm excited about Embrace the Pivot. I I love Thank watching you. all of your work. I want to ask you, what advice would you give to a woman that's faced with a failure of her business idea? I mean, what, what should she do if she's looking at this abyss of, should I stay or should I go? So I full-heartedly believe that you have to learn how to fail quickly. And it doesn't mean that maybe your pro- like that your product fails or that you jump ship but it's just in knowing that whatever strategy you've used isn't working and to pivot, if you will, to another strategy. And once you understand that, then you have to understand if, say, you've tried three different strategies, okay, now what's the next thing? But don't get your identity tied to what you do because then it's a lot harder to leave. And it's a lot harder to feel like a complete failure. But if you don't have your identity tied to what you do, it's a lot easier to pick yourself up and just keep going because you can always rebrand yourself, have your identity um, attached to who you are as a person, as an individual. How do you work your ethics, your values, your morals, have your repu- you know, have your identity attached to that and not what you do. And that, and I'm coming from experience because for so long, it's like, oh, I'm Cheryl from the sports industry. But now I am Cheryl, embrace the pivot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it is, I, once I understood that, that what I did was not who I am, it helps make the process a lot easier. So learn to fail quickly and then know that your identity is not attached to what you do, but who you are and just keep going. Do you think that when you talk about embracing who you are and not attaching to what you do, I mean, that's a, when you're a woman working in corporate and if you're working at a, you know, a global famous brand, when you leave that brand, sometimes you're, you know, dealing with imposter syndrome because you're thinking, oh my goodness, I thought I was great, but now I'm nothing because I no longer work for XYZ, big giant global company. Um, but when you talk about this process that you went through to learn to figure out that, you know, you are about pivoting. You're not necessarily, you know, the woman in the sports management space or whatever. Do you think that the the best way to to communicate this and start helping people understand who you are and how you're branding yourself? Do you feel like writing is the best way to do that? I mean, would you recommend that people write articles on LinkedIn? Should they should they put make blog posts? I mean, how how do you actually create that narrative? What's what are your strategies for that? Yeah, it's all about the story that you tell. It's how you market yourself. And I've met a lot of people who they can't get past who they were. And that's the same story that they tell. They lead with, I'm just going to use myself as an example of this, is if I just kept saying, oh, I'm Cheryl, I have 15 years of experience in sports, and then it takes me 10 minutes to get to what I'm doing now, 
then that's not marketing myself correctly. That's not sharing my current story. But when I say, hi, I'm Cheryl, founder of Ready to Roar, creator of Embrace the Pivot brand and regular contributor at Forbes, that's who I am now. And that's where I'm going. And then you tie in the past to help lay that foundation of why you're valuable. And it's all about that story. It's if if we can understand that people are more interested in where you are now and where you want to go versus where you've been, I think that would help women so much more. Just focus on the story of who you are now and where you want to go. I love it. And then just use the past as that foundation. Who was your favorite guest when you were writing for Forbes Women? I mean, this takes a lot of courage because there's going to be a lot of women you're going to leave out. Yeah, um, this one, her story will forever be with me. She came from middle, upper middle class. She had everything going for her. She got involved in drugs, was homeless, was incarcerated. And while she was incarcerated, she goes, I can't do this anymore. And she, when she came out, there were no resources for her. And she created this newsletter for incarcerated women to give them tips, um, how to interview, all this stuff. And now she's helping thousands of women transition out of jail and into the real world. And just her whole story, it just stuck with me that like, if she can do it, anybody can do it. She was literally homeless. And now she has this company that is helping thousands of women who desperately need help. So who is this amazing woman? So her name is Tracy Blumfield. Okay, so we can look her up because she sounds, it sounds fascinating. I mean, anyone that helps, um, you know, former incarcerated women find a path forward is is a hero. I mean, it's an absolute hero. So here's the deal. Everybody's eating way too much cereal. I want to know what your favorite cereal is. I really do. Because I'm, I'm eating a lot of Lucky Charms and Honeycomb. Uh, Captain Crunch. Oh, my God. My butter. favorite. I love Captain Crunch. I love Captain Crunch. It's so good. Yeah. Oh, my God. Do you? So, wait. Are you an oat milk? Or are you a regular milk girl or almond milk? Milkadamia. What's that? Milkadamia. It's from the macadamia nut. Oh. And it is so good. Is it better than it oat is. milk? I can't believe it. Yep. Yep, and it actually has more vitamin D than regular right, milk. Right, but I mean, is it as 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 neutral tasting as oat milk? Yep. All yep. right. It is so good. I'm going to try it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm right. going to try it. And then what music are you listening to right now? Do you have a favorite band or a new song that came out that you love? I don't. I'm old school right now. So what does that mean? Are you listening to Led Zeppelin or something? What's going on? Jimi Hendrix? <laughs> I, Eric Clapton? I am listening to Matchbox 20. Get out. No. Stop it. Jeez, are you kidding me? Come no, on. Matchbox Twenty. They're my band. Oh, they're my band. I mean, are, wait. Are where are they from? Are they from? Wait, where are they from? Oh God, I don't even. Okay, know. so it's not like a hometown <laughs> band for you. No, no. Oh, you don't know Matchbox Twenty? No, oh, I do. Goodness. I do know Matchbox Twenty. I just don't know where they're from. I wasn't sure if that was oh, why yeah, you were. No. Yeah, that is no, hilarious. Not, <laughs> Matchbox yeah. Twenty. Oh my gosh. Okay. No shame, Matchbox Twenty. If you're listening, you just got to shout out. <laughs> from Dr. Robinson. <laughs> All right, listen, Cheryl, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining my podcast. And I'm looking forward to reading more of your amazing things. And I'm really looking forward to watching your Embrace the Pivot platform blossom into something 
absolutely remarkable. That's going to take over the entire world. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This was wonderful. And it's so awesome to see how your brand is growing as well. <laughs> I'm Esri Coro. And I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And we'll see you next time. The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago, at Stomping Ground Studios in Ukrainian Village. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Ikora. E.